This is wonderful. Well, hello, everybody. Isn't it good we get to be together every single week? Hey, that's pretty wonderful. You kind of know that no matter what has happened in your week, we get to all be together at the end of it, or the beginning of Sunday is the first day of the week. I don't really know. Anyways, um, it's so good to be here, and I've, I've thought about this a little bit. We were just in France, and, um, and we spent a lot of time with just some wonderful Muslim people there, and, and there's just such... There, there is such a deep shame that has, has fallen over so many of our Muslim um, friends in France. Just this, just this feeling that people look at them as though they're just being looked at as extremists. And they just feel such um, a shame. And I noticed a big difference between the amount that they used to practice their faith as opposed to now. How it just seems to be this burden that's been laid upon them. And I just got thinking about our church here and... And how if Pentecost never happened, if the Holy Spirit never descended on the earth, this would just be such a waste, wouldn't it? Just gathering in a room and talking about ideals from a dead book. What a waste. That would be such a waste. But the very foundation of our faith is that we're born again. We're not just converted to a belief system, but the old person is dead. They're actually Dead. Jesus refers to this, this wonderful transaction as rebirth. The fact that, that we can actually have life that is spiritual. It's so different and unique. I have just an increasing burden for our Jehovah Witness friends who just stand on the corners with their newsstands. Imagine trying to convert somebody to your belief system without the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it would be impossible. You would get converts to a belief system or to a community, but you'd get no transformation at all. And you'd have no comfort from the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's raining and I'll drive by and I'll think, you know what, we need to be there praying for them. They're out there on the streets and, and I'm so often just in my home on Netflix. And I think, man, they're, they're looking and they're searching and they're desperate and, and we really need to do something because we know about rebirth. We've witnessed it, haven't we? I mean, atheists have a hard time with rebirth. Atheists have a really hard time with seeing somebody get a brand new nature to go from death to life. Alcoholics suddenly being completely released. People with no hope getting hope. It's, it's such a beautiful and wonderful thing that we get to witness. I love it. We were um, in France a year ago, and we were sitting at this very public cafe, and there's all of these French girls smoking. Everybody smokes in France. It's the weirdest thing. And just we're surrounded by them, and all of a sudden there's a man. He's standing very close to us and staring at us. And that's awkward when you don't know where you are and can't speak the language. And then he looks at me and he says, do you know Jesus? And I was shocked because there's like four Christians in France. And I said, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And the guys at our table are like, yes, yeah, we do. And then he's like, oh, I just met him. And then he goes into his story. He says, my name is Shifnas. He said, I was a Muslim. This was like a week ago. He said, I was a man who would just run with the gangs. I would fight every single night. I would sell drugs. I would, I would get drunk. I would sleep with a girl every single night, he said. And he said, my life was so miserable. And these are the words that he said. He said, I wanted to suicide myself. He just said, I hated life. I hated everything about who I was. And, 
And so what I did is I went to an imam, which is a Muslim priest, and he went and he, he went to this man and asked for prayers, and the imam promised that he would pray for him. And he went back to his room and he said that night, he said that a, a demonic force was sent to his, his house and tormented him. And it was so horrible that that was the night he was just going to end it. He said, there's no hope in Islam. He was completely beyond hope. And he went on the internet and, and a Christian Canadian lady reached out to him on the internet and started to pray for him and took his name and distributed it to all the churches that she knew of and they started praying for him. And a few weeks later in his room, he finally just said, Jesus, I'm open to you and prayed to Jesus and had such a dramatic, radical encounter in his bedroom. He said that he just began to weep. And he said for an entire week, he just wept. He'd go on the subway, he would just be weeping. He says, I wasn't sad. It was the greatest feeling of my life. He said, I'd go to the grocery store, I'd be crying. And people would say, what's happening with you? And he would say, Jesus. <laughs> he says his whole life was instantly changed, that the old man was completely gone, that all of his old habits were gone. But people could not deal with it. People could not get over this. He would call home, and he told his sister about Jesus. And she started to weep over Skype. And she received Jesus right there over the Internet. And then his parents get on. And they kept saying this. They said, who is this new Shifnas? We don't know him. They would constantly say things like, but aren't you a Muslim? And he would say, no, I am a child of God. His old friends would call and want him to do favors like running drugs. And they would say, who is this new Shifnas? Old girls would text him to have sex. And he would be, no. People couldn't get over it. And they kept saying, who is this man? Who is it? Who is it? And he would always say, that man is dead. He doesn't actually live anymore. This is rebirth. This is the very foundation of our belief. And for many of you, you can witness times like that. I would imagine that if we were to have a testimony time in this room, most of you would say something like, like I knew Jesus from a younger age, and I had parents that raised me. But there would be a time where you can say, I noticed a change in my heart. That, that I was a different person. For me, um, when I was born again, my heart radically changed. When I was a young teenager, I was a mean-hearted kid. And I was selfish. Friends at school would get beat up or something. And in my heart, I would be kind of glad. And I remember thinking, what's wrong with my heart? There's a problem with my heart. Kids would be left out in our youth group, and I didn't care. In fact, I, I wanted them to be left out. And, and I think I was a bit of a bully with my words and my humor. And when Jesus grabbed a hold of me at camp, something radically changed in my heart. I actually loved people more than myself. I'd go to school, and I would want them to have the better lunch. That sounds weird. I actually changed, and the girls in my class kept saying this over and over. They said, You've changed. What has changed? Why are you so different? And I would be like, I don't know what's going on in my heart. I'm, I'm different. I'm new. And the next year I went to camp, and there's a new leader that came for our camp, and he took me aside, and he says, I've heard about you. And I'm like, okay. And then he said to me, he said, you know what? I don't want you here. And, 
And there was just this feeling in me that I'm a new creation. And that old person is gone. But isn't it interesting how we have a hard time letting go of labels? And when somebody is born again and new, we have a really hard time moving on in our own hearts toward them. It's so easy to label people. And I think we've all done that. And I think we all feel labeled to some extent or another. Lots of us, um, we look at others and we'll think, we'll think that they're a mental illness. Or we'll say, that person has a temper issue. That person is an adulterer. And we place labels upon them, not recognizing that, that we're being made new. Today's text is a profound text. The book of Matthew was by far the most popular book in the early church. For the first two centuries, every church you'd go to, you'd be learning from the book of Matthew. Matthew was the preeminent gospel. It's quite the book. Why don't you open it up with me to Matthew 1. We'll get to it in just a moment. But as we study scripture, it's not just a passive thing. The Bible is very clear that we can't understand it unless the Spirit interprets it for us, unless the Holy Spirit comes and moves us and gives us eyes to see, as Jesus said, and ears to hear. So we can't do that. So even sitting in this place, it is a dead activity unless the Spirit comes and works. The Bible is living and active if the Holy Spirit is present. So let's pause for just 10 seconds and ask the Spirit to fill you personally, to give you understanding, and then I will pray. Father, I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit, God, that your spirit would be so present in this room, God. God, that this wouldn't just be another morning, God, that this wouldn't be just another time where we learn from your word, God, but it's another time, God, where your spirit comes and does spiritual surgery, God. You say that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. Father, be very present with us. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So on the ark, we hand out Bibles, and it's always so interesting to see the kids that don't have Bibles, and when they put up their hand, we'll like take these little ark Bibles, and we'll throw them to them, and it's it's such a fun moment. It's kind of like being at SeaWorld and feeding the dolphins, and and we'll hand them one, and I remember throwing one to this girl, and she grabbed it, and she'd always wanted a Bible, and she took it, and she hugged it. She was just snuggling her Bible, and after this, we said, okay, now it's time. We're going boating and tubing and all that stuff, and then I would pray, and the kids would leave. But she just sat there with her Bible, and she was like, I'm just going to read my Bible. And I thought, oh, this is wonderful. So I go away and get things going, and I come back 10 minutes later, and she's reading Matthew 1, and she's on, like, verse 7. And she's like, I don't get this book. (laughs) The beginning of Matthew, which is the beginning of the New Testament, is the most boring introduction ever. It's horrible. Matthew lists out 46 names and then repeats them like Matthew. But in the early church, this was the greatest introduction of any book ever. There was cliffhangers. They would read this genealogy, which was very common back then in their books and literature, was to have a genealogy because it set up the main character and it was pointing toward the fact that this person is a big deal and worthy and has lots of Um, kings in his family line and has no scandal so it's setting up Jesus as this is Jesus 
and this is why he is so wonderful. But this genealogy is unlike any genealogy ever, and we need to read it with fresh eyes. Phil gave me any, he said, you can preach on whatever you want. I chose the genealogy of Jesus. This wasn't forced upon me. Anyways, grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew 1. We're going to read the genealogy. Try to spot what makes this genealogy so amazing. What the first and second century Jews and Christians would have thought, wow, what is happening in this book? The things that maybe we miss today in our own understanding. Are you guys ready? Let's go for it. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What a start. See, the Messiah had to be a descendant of both Abraham and David. And so Matthew is saying, guess what? Jesus unbelievably lines up and is a descendant. So to the Jewish audience, they would have been, that is amazing. This is a powerful start. And then he goes on to the absolute heroes of the faith. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Hold on. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. That's a good name, eh, Ram? If any of you guys are having a baby, consider Ram. I bet Ram needed glasses. Anyways. Yeah, they just rammed into things. Aminadab, the father, or sorry, Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. You guys tracking? Okay, verse 6. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Oh. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. That's another good name. That's not a good one, though. Don't, Don't call your kid Zerubbabel. Unless you've already chosen that, then go with it. Zerubbabel, the father of Ebahud. Ebahud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. There's a girl uh, that goes to pursuit. Her name is Rosa, and we call her Azor. It's her name backwards. It's brilliant. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elahud. Elahud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matin. Matin, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. We're done. The husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Wow, we did it. So kids get their new Bibles, or we hand them out at Living Nativity. They open it up to Matthew 1 and read that, and they're thinking, what is this? What is going on here? So back then, a genealogy, which was supposed to prove that there was no Gentiles in your line, that there was no scandal that this person had the highest credentials, and it really showed off the privilege of birth. 
saying this person has good genes and royal lineage. What is happening here is that it's full of scandal and highlighted. And there are five women in this genealogy known as the X-rated grannies, and this was never done at the time. Women would never have been included in the genealogy. They were never in a genealogy. So at the very beginning of the book of Matthew, they're saying that this Messiah is very different. That something radical is happening here. That there is something so crazy about to happen that you're going to have to witness what's next. It's the most unusual genealogy in history. It starts off with Tamar. And I'll tell you what, Tamar had a terrible reputation. This is how she is sort of um, represented in literature, as very promiscuous. She was married to a man named Ur, and she was chosen by his dad, Judah, to be his daughter. But Ur was so evil that the Bible says that God killed him. That's not a good start to a marriage. (laughs) Judah chose Tamar, And decides that now he must provide another husband. So he gives her his other son, the second born. But the second born is not happy about this. And decides that he is not going to give her a baby. And so the Bible says that he tricked her. And and the Bible goes into that um, very, very politely. And says that he spilled his seed on the ground. And that's what happened there. And she got very upset because she needed a baby because at that time, women, if they didn't have a baby, then their value was much less. That The value was tied to the ability to, to provide children. And so finally she said, I want a husband who will give me a baby. And Judah said, you can have the youngest. But this is a little kid. She's like, I can't wait for him. And this little six-year-old's like, oh, gross. I get my brother's wife. Like, look how old she is. And years go by, and Judah just had forgotten this. And life had moved on, and Tamar didn't have a baby, so she did something crazy. She went and hid as a prostitute at the temple because she wanted to get pregnant so bad, and she waited for a man to come. And a man showed up to buy sex from her, and and the transaction included um, sheep being given to the prostitute, but he didn't have any. So as a deposit, he gave her his staff. And this worked, and she got pregnant. But then Judah found out, her father-in-law, that she's pregnant, and by prostitution, he is so upset that he wants to kill her. So he calls for her, and she comes to him, and he says, I heard you are pregnant by prostitution. And she has the staff with her, And she hands it to him and says, the person that impregnated me owns this staff. It was Judah, her father-in-law, that impregnated her. Imagine this. Now, this is showing up in the genealogy of Jesus. This massive scandal in the church. And this is highlighted. And then there's Rahab. She was actually a prostitute. She wasn't just hiding as one. And she lived in the city walls of Jericho. And when Joshua sent in spies, what happened? Is they actually went to her house. Why were they there? This was again a scandal. And this woman who is a prostitute 
is in the genealogy of Jesus because of her faith, but also not hiding the fact that she was a prostitute. In his brag list of his lineage, we have two prostitutes. And then there's Ruth. Ruth is a classy lady. All of the imagery of Ruth is very positive. But she is a Moabite, and no lineage would ever include a Moabite. The Moabites were considered the most despised of all the people. When Sodom and Gomorrah were burned, Sarah looked back and turned to salt. Remember that? And now Lot is left with his daughters, and they're just on the plains. They're camping. And the daughters are like, we need babies. And there's no boys. So they got their father drunk and got pregnant by him. This is in Genesis. This is the king's family tree. They had a boy, and his name was Moab. He started the Moabites, a despised people. So in this family tree, we have the Moabites. And then there's Uriah's wife, who we all know who that is. That is Bathsheba. Bathsheba, in that time, sort of personified promiscuity. Bathing on the roof, King David took her and got her pregnant. And David kills her husband. David is the one... Who is, who is the king who's after God's heart. And in the genealogy of Jesus, it's highlighted that Uriah's wife is a part of it. This scandal that rocked the people is highlighted. Why is this there? And then there's Mary. We know Mary is holy. Oh, Mary. But at that time, when Matthew wrote this, she was surrounded by rumors of sexual scandal. The Jews believed she was a liar and an adulterer, and this is the family of Jesus. And as Matthew lays out this genealogy, the readers at the time would have been, what kind of genealogy is this? This is unlike anything we've ever read before. So this is the Messiah, and this is his family. What is going on here? We don't understand this. You see, this genealogy has a totally different purpose. A normal one shows off the privilege of birth. This one brags on rebirth. You see, here's the beauty, is that when, when Jesus says that we're born again and the old person is dead, that they don't exist anymore, don't you think that reality would show up in the genealogy of Jesus? These people were of bad repute. These people are horrible, but this Messiah redeems and gives a new identity and a new name. That's profound. And when Paul says there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, is it a surprise that women and Gentiles are highlighted if those titles don't exist in the kingdom of God? See, we are a reborn people. We are completely new. The labels that we put on ourselves and that society puts on us and the reputation that we had is actually gone in the eyes of God. That's not just rhetoric. That's not just a nice promise. It's reality. We were invited to a church on our first year in L.A., and we got to meet the senior pastor. And I remember this, the, the guy that was taking us was like, you get to meet the senior pastor. And we're like, okay. And it was a church just like this, and we were sitting in the audience just like you, and we're waiting. And I'm expecting sort of an older guy, you know, with a nice deep voice. Hello and welcome. Hey, everyone. Suit and tie. That's what I was expecting. And, and out comes this man with full face tattoos and he obviously had stretchers in his ears because his earlobes were all saggy. And, and then he started to talk. And he had the most effeminate voice you can imagine. 
And, and we all started to kind of giggle. Some of the guys thought he was putting on a bit of an act. And then he said, he said this. He said, I'm not what you were expecting. Am I right? And, and we're like, oh, you've, no, whatever, you know, just speechless. And then he says, how many of you question my sexuality? And nobody put their hand up until one guy at the back, I do. <laughs> like, me. And he's like, I don't blame you. And then he sat down on the edge of the stage and he told us his story. This guy was, um, at the age of eight, abused by his family sexually. And at the age of 10, he was sold into prostitution. Ten-year-old kid, the streets of California, being sold to men. And he lived like this until he was 24. A man approached him and prayed for him. And he said it felt like lightning was going up and down his spine. He said, in that moment, I was a new creation. He said, something changed in me so deep. And he went to Bible school, and he became a pastor. And he said, you know what? I am a new creation. That old me is gone. It's not existent anymore. That's not who I am. I hate that old man. I'm a new creation. I'm a child of God. I am not a child prostitute. This is rebirth. And this is the very story of Matthew, who's writing this book. He was a tax collector. And tax collectors were in a very dangerous position. The Romans were terrible. They taxed the Jews terribly. They beat them. They were ruthless. But they made a Jew be their public face. So this man would be known as a traitor. Despised. If you walked by a tax collector at his booth, you'd spit on him. If there was no guard there, they would kill him. This man was despised. He was the public face of tyranny. And it gets way deeper than that, is that Jews weren't allowed to even talk to them. Obviously, women, Jewish women weren't allowed to marry them. They weren't allowed in the synagogue. They were completely outsiders, and he was hated. And Jesus approaches this man, this hated man, and says, follow me. This is Matthew, who wrote the book, is the most hated man. And Matthew gets up and follows him and invites Jesus to his house and the Jews freak out. And they surround the house of Matthew. And Jesus is in there. And they're like, what are you doing, Jesus? We're not allowed to talk to him, let alone eat with him. And this is what Jesus says. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Isn't it interesting that that is about Matthew? That's not about a murderer? It's not about some horrible person that we might envision in our mind, but the person who is writing the book of Matthew in the Bible. That, that the person who God chooses to write down the most influential book in history, perhaps, was the most despised man and gives him a completely new identity. Wow. Matthew had a boss, this little man named Zacchaeus, and and many of you guys know this story. He's this short man, and the Bible says that he's hiding in a tree, or he's in a tree to see Jesus. Wherever Jesus went, there were tens of thousands. People couldn't even walk. It's like, you know, like they were shoulder to shoulder bumping into each other. If Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector, falls from that tree and lands amongst the Jews, they will kill him. He doesn't have his guards with him. They're not allowed to touch him, talk to him, be near him. So yeah, he's in the tree to see Jesus, but he's also there so he doesn't die. Jesus shows up and he sees Zacchaeus, the most hated man, and says, you, a 
I'm coming over for dinner. And he shows up to Zacchaeus' house, and the same thing happens. The Jews will have none of it. And this is what happens with Zacchaeus. Luke 19, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, this is profound. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. (laughs) See what Jesus is saying? You're in my genealogy now. You just went from despised and outcast to a part of my family. Beautiful. What's happening here is that we are not our label. So many of us feel like we question our salvation. I just had a guy message me late last night and say, how do I know I'm going to be in heaven? He says, I am so full of anxiety tonight. This is like one in the morning. How do I know I'm going to heaven? We just talked about the fact that when you're a new creation, you're not your sin. You don't strive anymore. That You're a child of God. You're not your label. This year we had a real emotional funeral in this building. Many of you know Denver Moore. He was an amazing guy. He was a part of our our pursuit congregation and And he was born again. He was incredibly generous. He was really well known for how he loved without condition. He lit up a room. He would laugh and it would shake the building. This guy was creative and he was amazing. He was born again. But just like a lot of us, a lot of his old man was still there. And he described himself as a drug addict. And it was fentanyl that killed him. And then Denver's dad stood up and in front of hundreds of people, he did something amazing. He said, there's some of you men in this room who have been pointing my son into the man that God made him to be, his new self, his new creation. And then he pointed them out. He said, this person. And he's talked about how he pointed him to Jesus and his, and his true identity. And this person, and this person, and this person. It was amazing. And I knew Denver quite well, and I knew that also in his life he had people that pointed him to his old self, to who he used to be. And they tempted him in ways and told him he was an addict and and belittled him and talked down to him. This is what C.S. Lewis says, there are no ordinary people. You never talk to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with work with, marry, snub, and exploit. All day long, we're in some degree helping each other to one of these destinations. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This is the function of the church because each one of us is working out our salvation. Being born again is wonderful and we have a new heart. But listen to what Paul says is that we have to work it out. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on your new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. And I think all of us in this room would be like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be my sin. So many people struggle with things that they despise. 
So many people struggle with pornography and then hate themselves. Beat themselves up, struggle with, with drinking too much. Struggle with comparing their bodies and envy. We hate our sin, don't we? We hate it. We'll, we'll be sinful and then we'll just feel so ashamed and we'll think, what's wrong with me? Why am I worse than everyone else? Because we know our own private sins, but we don't know anyone else's private sins. How in the world do we put off our old self? We can't do it by ourselves. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians right after that. He says, put on your new self. Take off your old self, and this is how you do it. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We can't put our own old self off on our own. We can't. We need each other to do that for us. That's why we need community. We can't do it on our own. Listen to what Hebrews 3 says. But encourage one another daily as as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The word for encourage is this word kaleo. I love this word. It means to give a title, a name, or an identity. This means that we can heal each other and help each other put on our new self by pointing out who each other are, their identity. Just like Denver's dad said, this person did it for my son, and this person, and this person. We get to do that in each other. Jesus is saying, look at my genealogy. It's full of broken people. Praise the Lord. But they're dead, and they're new. Rahab's not a prostitute. She's a child of God. She belongs in my family tree. Zacchaeus, he's not a tax collector. He's a child of God. Shifnas, he is not a Muslim. He is not a gangster. He's not a brawler. He's a child of God. We have a new identity, but we need each other to step into them. This is how we bring the kingdom to earth. And by the way, this is the parents' function, is to speak kaleo into their children. Identity comes from the parents. That's how it works. It's really important. I see so many kids who don't have a father and, and, and they just don't know who they are. And they'll say, like, I just don't know. Who, I have no clue who I am. And I believe that the church gets to step in and say, I know your real father. And, and I get to speak words of truth and identity, Kaleo, to you. This is also the job, by the way, of a son or a daughter to their parents to speak kaleo to them and identity because it's so interesting. But we always think that, that parents are just above reproach and perfect, and then you grow up and realize they're just like everybody else. And, and we get to speak identity to them. We get to speak identity to our grandkids. This is the job of a youth leader. When our kids come, we get to speak identity kaleo to them to help them put off their old self If we're always saying, don't do this, I don't want you here, you are a bully, you are a jerk, guess what happens? We're helping them go back to their old self. If we say, you are different, this is who God made you to be, then they step into it. Last last month, a kid said to me, I love this youth group, and here's why. He says, you're the only people that know who I really am. No one else knows who I am, and I don't like who I am with other people. Like, let me ask you a question. When you, when you walk into this community 
or we're at Green Bay for baptisms, or you invite people over for dinner, do you like who you are with each other? If you don't, then it's because you're not speaking kaleo identity into each other. And you're speaking death into each other and pointing out who we used to be, the old man. But that person is dead and gone. And Jesus says, look at my genealogy. All these people are born again and reborn and beautiful with the new identity. This is the church. I love that. This is why we're here. Listen to what Hebrews 10 says. Do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. There it is again, kaleo. But kaleo each other. So when we come here, it's not just everybody coming and listening to one person use their spiritual gifts while everyone else just sits there. Passive, boring, pointless church. We might as well sit at home and listen to a podcast. And then worship, where seven people use their gifts and we all sing. We might as well just put on iTunes and worship at home. Church is a place where we're active, where we come and we kaleo each other. That's church. I want to be a part of that. That's the body of Christ. At the Ark, we do this really simple thing. Every Thursday morning, we give the kids cards. And they say, things that I love about, and then each kid writes their name. And then in their cabin, they pass them around. And each of them write things that they love about each other. Their identity. Their kaleo. And what's so cool is that they all go to their cabins, and they all have their little golf pencils. And then I go out and I get ready because it's time for boating after that. And I wait on the dock and I watch the cabins. And one door will fly open. And kids will come running out. And they're smiling ear to ear. And they're laughing and they're hugging. And they have just found out who they are. And they're alive because they encourage each other. And when you encourage each other and know who you are, what happens to the deceitfulness of sin? It's gone doesn't exist anymore. We sin when we're told who we used to be, but that person's dead. The deceitfulness of sin is removed when we show each other who we were created to be. And then another cabin door opens up and sand is flying and they're laughing. And by the time all the cabins are open, that place is like a beehive of giggling. It's the happiest place you've ever seen in your life. Imagine this place. Those doors open at the end of service. And the sound of giggling hits the streets of Highway 33. The police set up radar there every time because they know people are just going to be ripping out of here in joy. And they're like, I don't know what's up with that place. But every time they gather, they speak life and kaleo and build each other up. That is church. Church is not passive. Yeah. Church is not sit there and do nothing. It's come here and worship. And God will give you a word and a truth. And you get to actually speak it to each other. Your social media, what a tool. Your texting. Whenever I have a day off, I think, okay, there's five people I need to speak words of Kaleo to. And I read a letter or a note, and I'll just send it on Messenger. And I'll say, like, you know, I've been praying for you. And then I'll just say this, 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 and this. Like, these are all things that I've seen in you that God loves about you. It changes relationships. They go from surface and boring and mundane to spiritual and supercharged in a hurry. We get to do this for each other. This is church. This is what Jesus called us into. I love that. So let me encourage you. Every time you come here, think, I get to, oh, I get to come to the house of God. 
I get to learn from the word. I get to worship God. But I get to kaleo. I get to encourage. I get to speak truth. I love that. We should all be leaving here beaming and knowing who we are. Let me pray. And, and we're going to worship. And um, oh, God is so good. I'm just reminded that, that in that genealogy that my name would not be included. That I am not a Jew. Neither are you. That we would be cut off from the family of God if it was not for the love of Jesus. And the fact that we get to be born again where it doesn't matter about the privilege of our birth, but the power of our rebirth. Every one of us in this room gets the privilege of being a part of the family of God. And that's worth worshiping. I recognize that some of you in this place perhaps have never said, Jesus, I want to be born again. It's a powerful thing. It's where you say, I no longer live. In other words, I'm no longer the boss of my life, but I actually trust you with my life. I actually put you as the Lord of my life. We love Jesus as our Savior, but not always our Lord and Savior. But the power is in Him being our Lord, where He is our King, and we trust Him. And we don't say, how am I going to spend my Friday nights? It is, it is Jesus, how, how should I spend my Friday nights? You decide. How do I spend my money? Not this is how I'm going to. It's making Him the Lord of our life. And there's power in it because when we die to self, here's what happens is that the Spirit comes and fills us and we're born again and we're made new. And the fruit of the flesh, which is the old me, is, is anxiety and anger. It is pain. But the fruit of the Spirit is the opposite. It's love and it's joy. This is what we get when we lay down our lives. It's peace. Oh, the world is searching for peace, isn't it? Everybody wants peace, and so there's apps on our phones. Put on this app, and you'll have peace. It's garbage. Peace comes from the Prince of Peace. And patience. Don't we want patience and self-control? There's so many temptations. They don't come from my ability to overcome. They come from the Father. That's where they come from. Everything we desire comes from Him. And so when we lay down our lives and we're filled with the Spirit, we become who we were made to be. And I'm going to encourage just each one of you, we're going to worship. And, and some of you, um, you need to work out your salvation. The Bible says to do that and lay down things that you haven't been making Him Lord. I encourage you to do that. For others of you, you've never surrendered your life and been born again. I'm going to pray. And I just want everyone in this place who, who just wants to work out their salvation or receive Him for the first time to just pray this with me. And then we're going to worship. So why don't you stand with me? Oh, Jesus, I want to be born again. I trust you as my Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. I trust that you are the giver of love. I trust that you are the giver of joy and real peace. I trust that you're the one that will give me self-control and patience with my loved ones. That all goodness comes from you and all kindness comes from you. I want to follow you. I want to be your child. 
I want to be in your genealogy. You say that you don't count my past against me, that I'm a new creation, that I'm not the label that others have put on me or that I've put on myself. I'm a child of God. Praise you, Jesus. And I'd just like to encourage you that if, if you've chosen today to be born again, just come on up and pray with one of us. There'll be people up here to pray with you. If you just want to just pray in general, we would just love to pray with you. Let me also encourage you that this very day, to make it a daily practice to kaleo, to speak words of encouragement to each other, to be the primary source of identity in your workplace, in your school, in your family, in your neighborhood. This is what will change hearts.